Welcome to another one of our interview segments here on The Breakdown. Given that we're talking about the whole Wexit move, uh, movement, we decided that it would probably be a good idea to go to a source of information that actually knows what the legalities of a potential separation from Canada would look like and what the constitutional implications are. So I'm very, very thrilled to welcome to The Breakdown today, uh, David Kahn. Thanks for having me. Thank Dave. you so much for, for joining you. us. Good to see you. So to start with, the first question that I'd like to ask is we, before we contacted you, we tried to find uh, a practicing constitutional lawyer who would be able to speak on the, the pro-Wexit side. We haven't found anyone. Do you think there's a reason for that? I think there's probably a reason for that, and that is that it's, it'll be very difficult for Alberta to separate okay. and uh, you know, legally. Uh, number one, and I think just number two, there's so many uh, problems with uh, a separate Alberta. These are not the answers to our to the problems. It'll just make the problems that we're facing in Alberta a lot worse. So okay. I don't even think that anyone has really seriously studied the issue. Okay. Um, is there, in your opinion, do you think that there is a, an existing legal pathway that the Wexit folks could pursue uh, in order to uh, separate if that's what their end goal is. I think hypothetically there is. There's the, the uh, example of Quebec and the 1995 Quebec secession reference. And okay. so there's uh, the Supreme Court has laid out a sort of uh, structure by which a province could pursue separation. That includes having a referendum, uh, having a clear question, um, uh, having a clear majority voting in uh, in support of a clear question in support of, re of separation okay but that's just the tip of the iceberg that that would trigger constitutional negotiations and uh, negotiations uh, between the federal government and the provincial Alberta government and all the other provincial governments in terms of, of a whole array of of uh, questions that would have to be answered. So that uh, a, a clear question and a, a clear vote to separate is just the start. Okay. So that would only, if I understand correctly, that would only trigger the negotiation process. Yeah. And there's there's no guarantee that that negotiation program process sorry, would would end in separation or in a, a positive separation for Alberta. Would that be a fair thing to say? Right. And I mean, so many of the cards are uh, would be arrayed against a, a, an Alberta negotiating. Uh, separatism, so okay. separating from the country. So there's the, the so many of the cards are held with the federal government and the other provinces, geographically, economically, fiscally. Uh, the, the list just goes on. Okay. So with with that, um, the there's a couple of points uh, that it seems like the the Wexiters or Wexiteers, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, uh, that they keep bringing up. Uh, in in regards to how they would navigate some of those those challenges, one of the the big ones that vaguely gets mentioned is, is some sort of UN convention guaranteeing uh, a landlocked state access to the sea. Do you, do you know what that's referring to? Yeah, so there's an Article 125, which uh, uh, which um, uh, in uh, in a UN convention uh, that. Uh, Hypothetically, allows a landlocked state to have access to to uh, to the ocean. Uh, but it, first of all, I find it highly ironic that, that these Wexiteers or these separatists are quoting a UN convention because the group of people that supports Wexit is largely the group of people that attacks the UN and international law and and federal law and and any, frankly any any uh, laws that uh, 
that are developed outside of Alberta. So it's 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 quite rich that they're quoting that uh, I, I, UN I, treaty. Yeah, I saw on their their platform it specifically states that they would reject the UN's authority in anything. So I'm curious yeah. how they would reconcile that with then invoking this UN law. But if they were able to do both of those things at the same time, what does this uh, Article 125 allow for? Yeah, so it's uh, it's called right of access to and from the sea and freedom of transit. Okay. Uh, the problem is is that uh, it only allows for um, uh, right of access in negotiation with the with the uh, state next door that you're negotiating access to the sea by, and it actually only um, and transport is actually just uh, described in the in the um, uh, treaty as railway rolling stock, sea, lake, and river craft, or porters and pack animals. Okay. So those are the only uh, means of transport that are directly referenced. So pipelines aren't included in that? Then. Well, there, there's another um, uh, section that says that transport pipelines and gas lines and means of transport other than those listed that I've just mentioned can be negotiated. But, but negotiated. But negotiated. So they're, they're, they're optional uh, means of transport that can be negotiated between states. The other really important thing about this is it, allow, it, it does give um, uh, the, the um, states that are being negotiated with to, be tri to uh, gain transport access across have to um, have explicit protections for their legitimate, legitimate interests. Okay. And that would have to be decided by by an international court as to what legitimate interests are, but you can imagine that they could be environmental interests, human rights interests, uh, uh, First Nations interests. So there's a whole, a whole uh, uh, negotiation that would have to be undertaken as to what those legitimate interests are. Okay. And we've seen the BC government, for example, um, not super pro pipeline these days. No, and, and exert all sorts of of uh, interests, some more legitimate than others, in opposition to TMX, for example. Is there the, the possibility, I know that BC and Canada are trying to work their way through the whole question of unceded territories in British Columbia. Uh, given the unresolved status of a lot of those pieces, would that be one of those interests that BC could theoretically invoke to prevent a pipeline from crossing? Right, well, so one of the reasons that uh, Northern Gateway failed is not uh, the, the constitutional duty to consult, which is embedded in Section 35 of our Constitution, that cannot be overridden by the, the notwithstanding clause or any other section of the Constitution. It's standalone protection of uh, Indigenous rights and title. That um, requires this duty to consult, and that's what failed on Northern Gateway, and that's really why Northern Gateway failed. I mean, it was put out of its misery by Prime Minister Trudeau after the 215 election, but it was not going anywhere because most of that uh, land over which the Northern Gateway Pipeline would have crossed is unceded territory, as you say. So most of the land west of the Rocky Mountains in British Columbia has never been uh, subject of treaties concluded with First Nations to share the land. Uh, most land east of the Rockies, right across the country, has is the subject of historical 19th century, early 20th century uh, treaties, but that BC land isn't. So. That's one of the, the real problems with, with um, resource projects and um, putting pipelines through uh, BC, especially northern BC, is we, don't, we haven't con concluded land resource sharing and uh, land sharing agreements with those First Nations. Okay. One of the other talking points that I've seen the, the Wexiteers uh, bring forward a lot is they, they seem to be working very hard to create 
a uh, positive relationship of sorts with, with First Nations in Alberta. Now, my understanding is a lot of that comes from the fact that all of Alberta is, is covered by treaties. Um, almost all of them supersede the formation of Alberta. Uh, so they, they carry a little bit more authority on, on not just a national scale, but on an international scale. Um, do you think it's realistic for the, the Wexiteers to believe that they'll be able to convince First Nations to sign away their existing treaty rights and the responsibilities that the federal government has to them and to just trust this new group of folks? Well, that's a great point, Nathan. Uh, for example, where we live here in southern Alberta is covered by Treaty 7, which was concluded in 1877, so you know, uh, 30, roughly 30 years before Alberta was even created. So those First Nations uh, signed Treaty 7 with the uh, Queen Victoria and the Crown in right of, the, of Canada, the yeah. federal crown. So that's who the treaties are with. Now, when uh, Alberta was tr was created, uh, some of those uh, so, uh, some of the the uh, control over lands was transferred to Alberta in the 1930 uh, Natural Resources Transfer Agreement. Okay. But they're subject to the promises and the treaty promises that the federal crown has made with First Nations. So uh, it's not within the capacity of Alberta to separate and uh, and 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 just exit from those treaties because they're not a party to those treaties and their control over Alberta Crown lands is actually subject to those promises that were made to First Nations okay. uh, by the federal crown. So it's very complicated. And as you said, uh, as, you, as you alluded, um, those uh, treaty rights are constitutionally protected by our, our federal constitution and why uh, groups of First Nations would want to forego those constitutionally protected uh, protections and, and join a new entity that uh, probably has a constitution that's crafted that doesn't have those protections is a really good point. Okay. In, in the hypothetical situation that I've seen advocated for on, on some of the, the Wexit groups, um, there's, there's been the argument that we could just take the land. Who would be the first line responsible for protecting First Nations rights if a, if a group of Albertistanians uh, decided that they were just going to occupy First Nations land? Well, the, the federal government has the uh, jurisdiction over uh, Indians and lands reserved for Indians, so uh, they have the, uh, the constitutional jurisdiction over uh, Indian reserve lands, but broader than that is all of Alberta land is treaty land that's been shared with First Nations. So all of all of the promises to First Nations for hunting, trapping, fishing, and otherwise using Crown lands across the province are are uh, uh, should would be protected by the, the federal Crown. Okay. So it's uh, plus the uh, you know we we may get into this, uh, but the uh, the federal government has uh, purview over defense. So all of the all of the military bases in Alberta, all of the military assets are all federal assets. So, uh, you know, the, the, there's a real question as to how these uh, Alberta Stanians would, you know, take uh, land by force. Yeah, and the, well, that, that does lead to sort of one of the other topics that I wanted to talk about because one of the other things that's come up on some of these Wexit boards is the notion that, well, in order to create uh, an Al Alberta military uh, defense force, uh, the, the military people who are in Alberta could just stay and uh, we would just keep them in their toys. 
How, how feasible is that? Well, those bases, those lands, those are all federal lands. Okay. Those are all federal employees, federal assets. And um, so th those would stay with the federal government pending some negotiation with uh, an Alberta that was wanting to separate. Okay. But I think those negotiations would be very steep. For example, we'd owe uh, 70, 80, 90 billion dollars uh, worth of the federal debt. And uh, interest payments would go up uh, uh, e even on our own provincial debt because we wouldn't get the same access to the same interest rates as, a, as Canada does. The other thing that's really concerning about this whole Wexit separation is um, this kind of notion that we can unilaterally separate and if, if we can't, we're going to take up arms. I, I'm no historian, but I, I saw someone on Facebook pointing out um, that uh, the fact that uh, apparently uh, the U.S. Civil War was, uh, was started um, because there was disputes over um, military bases in the South that were controlled by the federal government and, and uh, fight disputes over over uh, federal military bases. So this is a really, really dangerous path to, to go down. With the, the military piece, if there was a, uh, a soldier who was employed uh, by the Canadian forces who did decide to join the Alberta Stanian army, um, wouldn't that count as desertion and carry some pretty strict penalties under military code? I'm, I'm not a, a military lawyer, okay. so I really couldn't answer that from a legal perspective, but just from a, a, a layman's perspective, I think there's some pretty serious uh, consequences for desertion. And um, the, the next question that I have for you as well with that, um, how is this whole Wexit conversation not getting anywhere near the land of, of treason. How, uh, what, what's, what's the delineation for, you know, the, the Wexiteers can have their rally up in Edmonton um, and they can openly talk about not, uh, not wanting to be part of Canada anymore. They can hang the Canadian flag upside down uh, from hockey sticks. Where does the behavior cross the line from your exercising your freedom of expression? to you now cross the path to treason. Well, you know, that's that's a tricky conversation to have. I'm a big believer in free speech and uh, charter rights to free speech. Uh, and also I'm a big believer in self-determination of people. So if, if uh, Albertans uh, vote on a clear uh, question, vote in favor of separation, then they, they, they have a right to to self-determination okay. uh, so you know I'm, I'm not sure and I also don't believe that we should be um, that we I, I think enforcing laws such as treason are, are really antiquated and really okay. dangerous for civil society but um, you know what people do have to realize is there's real consequences to your actions there's consequences you can say whatever you want but there's consequences to, to uh, exercising your free, free speech rights, there's responsibilities. Similarly, if you want to separate, there's there's rights and responsibilities there to the other, uh, the, the rest of the population in Canada, to, to the other territorial, provincial, and federal governments. So there's a huge amount of responsibilities that would be undertaken by a, a, a new state of Alberta. Okay. Um, one of the, the big um, 
issues that seems to drive a lot of the frustration and a lot of the, the anger that is kind of the undercurrent to this whole movement has to do with the question of equalization. Um, so how, how much do you think that some of the rhetoric that we've heard around equalization and the, the, the misinformation, whether deliberate or accidental, uh, in regards to how equalization actually works has contributed to, to what we're seeing with the legs of thing. Yeah, that's frustrating because people are being uh, told that it's money that we're sending via check from Alberta to, to Ottawa or to the other provinces. What equalization is, is a federal program funded out of federal taxes. We all pay federal taxes and the federal government decides how to use that revenue. And so, so it's, a, it's a federal program and the federal government has a, developed a very complicated formula as to how to distribute money so that... Um, I believe our, our, our current premier was even part of the development yeah, of yeah. that formula. Yeah, the, the formula that was renewed by the, the federal liberal government was developed by Stephen Harper and Jason Kenney when they were in power. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's, it's, it's a complicated way the federal government has devised to try to, uh, to uh, allocate federal funds to other jurisdictions that don't have the same resources and, t and tax generating powers so that they can pay for programs and services so that if you're in a, in a poor part of the country, you can get a similar level of services as if you're in a richer part of the country because we believe that Canadians should have fairly equitable access to, to um, important uh, social and health services. Do you think that there's a, a reasonable argument to be made that if Albertans have paid a disproportionate amount uh, into the general revenues, which in turn has then gone towards the, the equalization payments, but that doesn't necessarily speak to anything other than how uh, fortunate Albertans have been in regards to what they've been generating for income over the last however many years versus the rest of the country. Yeah, so um, uh, average uh, salaries in Alberta are far higher than, than uh, in any other part of the country, so we automatically pay more federal taxes per capita than anyone else. So, uh, so, so we automatically are paying more into into um, the federal government's revenues per capita than other provinces. There is a real, um, I think, a legitimate grievance about uh, the, the severe downturn in our oil and gas economy that we've had since 2015, since the crash of world oil prices, and the real struggles that uh, many Albertans are facing these days. And uh, in, uh, in our Alberta Liberal platform, we actually had a, uh, a careful um, and, and specific uh, plan for renegotiating the equalization formula. Uh, for example, to take into account hydro revenue in hydro-producing provinces. So BC, Manitoba, Quebec, and Newfoundland all produce large amounts of hydropower, but they're produced by their crown hydro corporations, Hydro-Quebec, BC Hydro, Manitoba Hydro. So those um, revenues and profits are, are, are kept within the crown corporations, and then dividends are paid to those provincial governments. And uh, that revenue is not properly calculated in the current okay. equalization formula. So I think there's ways of, of improving the formula uh, to make it fair to Alberta, especially in these times of downturn where we could use some more help uh, from the federal government. Okay. So there's definitely a, a place for that. But, um, but as you pointed out, it was Mr. Kenny's uh, and Mr. Harper's cabinet that originally negotiated this 
this equalization formula. And he's lately been defending that by saying, oh, well, it was boom times in Alberta back then, so uh, times have changed now. But I don't think it's it's fair to say that in boom times it was fine to, to suck more money out of Alberta, but it's times have changed now. I think it should have been equitably designed from the start, and just because we were we were uh, um, doing uh, disproportionately well, yeah, it doesn't mean that that was a, a time for Mr. Kenny and Mr. Harper to suck more money out of Alberta. So I don't think it's a very fair uh, defense. Kenny has Mr. Kenny's talked a lot about. Uh, equalization. He certainly used it as a, to some people's perspectives, as a, as a wedge issue going into the, the provincial election. Uh, and I think that there's probably some people who would say that uh, he exploited people's lack of understanding as to how equalization actually works. He's recently started chatting more about the prospect of an equalization referendum if he doesn't get everything that he wants. Do you? What's the, the constitutional, does, does that accomplish anything constitutionally? If, if, we, if we get Albertans to pay for this, this referendum, which may or may not happen concurrently with civic elections, uh, does that change anything for Albertans fundamentally? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed to see that Mr. Kenny's been raising that more vociferously lately on in Twitter and in uh, uh, interviews and, and speeches. Uh, it's a complete waste of time. And as I, I, I said in the in the uh, uh, debate during the election, it's pure political theater. There's no, um, th there's nothing good that can come of a, a referendum on equalization formula. First of all, the equal the principle of equalization is built into our constitution, and as we know, it's very difficult to change our constitution. Yeah. We went through Meech Lake Accord, the Charlottetown Accords, uh, you know. We were younger when these were happened, but but people older than us will remember how how uh, how um, uh, what a waste of time those were. Mm -hmm. So his idea is to have a, uh, a referendum on equalization based on the Quebec secession reference, for forcing the opening of the constitution and a renegotiation of the constitution. That's just not going to happen. The formula itself is not embedded in the constitution. That's why uh, the Harper government last. Uh, tweaked it or, or built it in its current form. That can be changed, but it can be changed unilaterally by the federal government. The, the uh, in, provinces have no say in that because it's a federal program. It's all federal money that's being used to support that uh, the equalization program. So there's, so we can we can vote till we're, we're blue in the face about uh, demanding a new. Um, uh, a change in the constitution to remove equalization or or demanding a change in the formula, but we have no power in that regard. Okay. Um, the last question that I wanted to ask, given that you as a constitutional lawyer um, have a much higher level of understanding of the mechanisms that are would conceivably come into play on a separation question, do you think that the, the people who are leading this movement are legitimately believing that they're going to accomplish anything? Or is this more political theater? I think uh, Peter, like Peter Downing and some of these uh, luminaries in the Wexit movement are, are completely misled and, mis and, and uh, uneducated about our constitution and, how, uh, the, and the Quebec secession reference and how that might work. They're uneducated about the cost that Alberta would incur if it were to separate. They're uneducated about the uh, uh, real problems uh, 
a separate Alberta would be if it was stuck in the middle of North America with no uh, no access to any treaties, not being a party to any regional or multilateral treaties in the world, not having any access to a coastline, not having a national bank, not being part of a G7 country. There's a whole host of, of things that they don't, just don't seem to understand. That's the, that's those um, those people that are um, developing this, this separation movement. I think they just don't understand okay. the situation. But there's people like uh, radio hosts in Alberta, columnists in Alberta and in Canada that are fanning these flames, certain provincial politicians, and they do understand uh, these issues. Mr. Kenny was in the federal cabinet for uh, 10 years as a cabinet minister and has been an MP for much longer than that before becoming an MLA and premier of the province. He knows full well how the constitution works. He knows full well how international agreements work, how uh, pipelines get built, uh, what, uh, how uh, the G7 economies work, how the, the federal bank works, uh, how much of the federal debt would be uh, assignable to uh, an independent Alberta. So that, so that's really disappointing to me that people like Mr. Kenny and, and, uh, and uh, very high-profile people in the media continue to push this when they know better. Would it be safe to say that the, the people who do know better, whether we're talking about radio hosts, whether we're talking about politicians, whether we're talking about premiers, um, would it be safe to say that they're deliberately misleading Albertans uh, for their own political gain? And would it be safe to, to use the term predators when describing these people when they're taking advantage of the average person who doesn't have a, a background in constitutional law and their understanding of what these issues actually are? I've never, I've never used the word predator, but uh, I'm very concerned with uh, their actions and how they are um, exploiting uh, a lack of understanding of, by ordinary Albertans of how our country works, how the world works, how the economy works, how the oil and gas industry works. But they're also exploiting the real serious uh, concerns and worries that ordinary Albertans have. So they're exploiting bo both a, a lack of education and understanding and, and a real um, concern about that many people have about the future of our province and their jobs and their families. And those politicians are, are exploiting that for their own uh, personal political gain and don't have the best interests of not... Not only Canada, Canada, but not even, they don't even have the best interests of Alberta at heart. Because, you know, one thing that we, we haven't discussed here, but I think is, is one of the biggest problems with this whole thing is all of this talk of separation is scaring away international investment. Uh, we have a perfect model in Quebec in the 70s and 80s where capital fled that province because of the uncertainty created by uh, the separatist movement there. Why we'd want to go through that now, why we'd want to further scare away uh, uh, international capital and, well, and international capital investors. migrate anyways. Yeah, so I, I, so they're making the situation worse, um, be, uh, it, and exploiting uh, Albertans and their real fears about the future um, for their own political gain. And I think that's you know one of the most serious issues that we have here. Okay, so you wouldn't call them predators, but exploit them. Yeah, I'll call yeah. them predators. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> totally predators. 
thank you so much for your time, David. I appreciate you coming up here, driving up in the terrible weather, and being a part of this silly little experiment that we're trying to do here. Oh, I'm, um, I'm uh, really uh, ha happy to uh, be a part of it. I, I love uh, joining podcasts. There's a number of your um, podcast co-hosts that I've um, had the real privilege to to uh, be involved with. So I uh, really uh, appreciate the uh, the invite, and I'm glad to. Uh, make it up here on this uh, snowy evening. <laughs> thank you again. Yeah, thanks. Good night. Good to see you again.